Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, the session's about to start back, though, Jasmine, so we'll see how long my good mood lasts. Uh, <laughs> Likely not for very long. Uh, we have a lot of good stuff to talk about this week on the show. Um, first of all, our guest this week is Jason Bailey. He's the executive director of the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. These days they call it KY Policy or Kentucky Policy. Um, we talked to him about the tax cut, the bill that is before the legislature right now. We talked to him about the issues with the bill, what it, the, the funding for the government, and... Uh, what are kind of the downstream effects? Other states that have tried stuff like this. Uh, and then we've had just kind of a broader discussion about taxes and, and kind of how people think about them, whether they think about them enough and, and whether they think about them in the right way. Uh, and lots of other stuff. It's a good interview. Uh, we'd never had Jason on the show before, which kind of surprised me when we asked him to be on. Uh, but I thought it went really well. How did you think about it, Jasmine? I was just about to say that, that I couldn't believe we hadn't had him on before. I I thought it was great. I think... Jason is so good at summarizing the, these issues. I am not an economist. I did not major in economics like you did, Robert. And I think he just does a really great job of summarizing these issues in a really understandable way. I think, you know, his his Twitter threads about policy issues are always really great. And so it was really great to talk to him, especially about this income tax issue um, considering it's coming to us very soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will say as somebody with, with some economics training, I will say usually when people summarize, it makes me really nervous because it's like, oh, they're going to leave out something important. And he always is able to succinctly give the full issue, which I think is really important as well. You're not missing anything when you read something from him. Um, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's a little intense, but I think it's really good. And it's not like anybody who isn't, um, you know, able to read can't figure it out. So uh, yeah, good interview with him. Really excited to have him on uh so definitely stick around to listen to that so on the show today we are going to be talking about craig greenberg's administration putting 24 million dollars towards homelessness uh that's a big issue that was a big issue in the campaign a lot of people talked about homelessness throughout the entire time uh, first big announcement maybe the first big policy announcement of the greenberg administration since he became the mayor so we're going to talk about that and then jasmine has a full quick hit roundup lots of stuff following up on a lot of the stuff we had from last week including like more stuff from jonathan mattingly and bowling green more things about daniel cameron and his polls um even going all the way back to david mcatee and in the killing of david mcatee uh and, and other uh, and the, the policing issues around that. Uh, and, and yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that for sure. But we'll start by talking a little bit about homelessness. All right, Jasmine. So in one of the first major policy announcements is starting his term as mayor. Craig Greenberg said that the city, city would spend $34 million towards services and, uh, and housing for the city's unhoused population. I said $24 million earlier. It's $34 million. Uh, so, okay, the money is coming from the state after the federal government basically, like, forced the state to reallocate uh, part of its emergency rent assistance program money. Um, there was, like, a deadline. The federal government made this money available to the state. The state didn't spend it in time, and so the feds were like, you forfeit this money, state of Kentucky. It's Now we're going to move it just straight down to the city of Louisville. So this money um, is now can, uh, the city of Louisville is to do it as it as it sees fit in terms of um, the emergency rent assistance. So uh, lots of stuff around housing that is able to be done with this federal money. Uh, and it was up to the city government to decide how to spend it. So the largest chunk of money, $24 million, 
is going towards building permanent affordable housing. So this is just like housing that's going to be built for people that will be affordable. That's the entire purpose, increasing Louisville's housing stock. Um, you know, just the idea of putting more places for people to live in Louisville, which is a significant problem. The supply of housing is a significant problem everywhere and Louisville included. Um, all the reporting about this said that the money is going to go towards development partners who would bring housing uh, for households making less than 50% of the adjusted median income, which is a common, a pretty common measure for poverty. So, like, that's the idea is we want to get this housing into, uh, like, get to get to be utilized by people making less than 50% of the AMI is what, what they call it. So Mayor Greenberg also said that, um, you know, income would be a significant factor and that there are a lot of need, needs for among people who are making less than 30% of the AMI. So he said, like, as this becomes available, um, that that money, uh, that, that housing would be available based on income and, and need. Um, so, you know, this is this is kind of the longer, the longest term uh, utilization of the funds. The rest of this stuff is a little bit more immediate, a little bit more like happening kind of quickly, a little bit more details around the plan. But this big chunk of $24 million that's going towards housing, it is probably the most nebulous piece of the plan. Um, so not a lot of details, but that's the idea. A bunch of money go going towards developing housing in the city of Louisville. Okay, the next biggest chunk is $8.25 million. That's the chunk of money being spent to just keep people in their homes. So this... Uh, it, as a contrast to the development, which is kind of the furthest out in the future, this is the money that's going to be spent first. So the first group of people that's getting this money is the Association of Community Ministries. There's uh, branches of ACM all over the city. Um, where you are, it could be something like Muscle. I think that's South Central Louisville. Uh, there, there's the HCM, Highlands Community Ministries. There's even like EACM, Eastern Area Community Ministries. There's a bunch of these groups all throughout the city, and they do a lot of rent assistance already. This is already kind of in their skill set they do a lot of pass-through uh income uh whatever you like in income justification or like you know income verification for lg and e and other groups like this already they administer a lot of these programs for groups like this so this is definitely in their skill set they're going to be getting five million dollars to distribute to residents who face eviction uh, the next group of money, people who's getting money out of this eight and a quarter million is the Louisville Urban League. They're going to receive two million dollars to aid with security deposits in first month's rent. And the last chunk of money is one point two five million, and that is going to the Legal Aid Society, specifically to hire lawyers focused on eviction court. Um, so that's that's good. Like more legal aid lawyers, I think that's a good idea. Um, all of these things are are, are good ideas, uh, keeping people in, in their homes. Uh, and, and just in terms of how immediate this is going to happen, uh, the Urban League CEO said that the organization would start giving out assistance on February 20th, which is like three weeks from now. So this is happening very quickly for this part of the plan. So that's the first two parts of the plan. Jasmine, long-term plan to increase the supply of housing. Uh, not a lot uh, has been announced because it's longer term. We're going to work with developers to kind of get this done. And then uh, a more immediate chunk of money kind of spent to keep people in their homes, um, you know, just direct assistance to keep people uh, from being evicted and, and like a smaller chunk of money to, to help people who are already facing eviction with, with courts uh, and, and with security deposits and, and first month's rent that, that people might need, um, different organizations that the, that the government is working with there. So those are the first two pieces of the puzzle. 
the last piece is uh, I think the piece that's getting the most attention. At least that's my estimation based on the reporting that's kind of been going on about this so far. And that's $6.9 million, which the city is going to spend to build a, quote, community care campus, unquote. And it will be at the View Guesthouse Hotel, which is along Breckenridge, Floyd, and Book Streets in Smokedown. Only like a few blocks away from where we used to record the podcast. We, we, we did it in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, yeah. Uh, I I didn't know about the View Hotel. I guess I'd seen the building as I've seen pictures, but I I had no idea that that was like a boutique luxury hotel. Um, do you do you have any like? Did you know that, Jasmine? Did you know there's like a boutique hotel right there? No. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, which I saw it in pictures about this like for this article. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of an interesting story, right? It seems like. Uh, this boutique hotel, the View Guest House, was is owned is currently owned by a man named George Stinson, um, and he has already suggested using this to for homelessness prevention. Uh, this is a plan he's had before. So uh, WDRB had a, a couple of stories about this, and in one of them he said, "quote When I invested millions of my own money to develop this property, I never envisioned the use I am proposing to you, but at this point it makes sense." Unquote. Um, he also said in the WDRB part, or uh, he was quoted in the WDRB story saying that he uh, that Smoketown had become quote a nucleus for the the homeless, which devalued the project unquote. So, um, you know that is where like the Hope Project is, but they put the Hope Project where it was because there was a pretty significant homeless population that had was already living in Smoketown. Clearly, uh, yeah, George Stinson built a luxury hotel in a place he thought. Uh, was going to undergo a pretty significant change in the neighborhood character, I guess. Uh, I thought it was going to be, you know, I, if you want to use the word gentrification, you thought that this was going to, like, gentrify a little little faster uh, than it clearly did. And now he's stuck owning a luxury hotel in a part of town that probably there isn't a lot of demand for a luxury hotel. So he is proposing this idea to use this hotel to serve homeless people. And he proposed that the government buy it last year. So Stinson is a campaign donor for Greenberg, as well as lots of other Democrats. Um, I will say that I know the people that work in fundraising just complain bitterly about the low amount that is the maximum amount that you can give in Kentucky. Um, you know, one of the good parts about having a low maximum amount is like the amount of pressure you can exert on people who are elected is a little bit lower. So I don't know. It, it was a little <laughs> surprising to me. Like, I don't think, you know, Craig Greenberg had like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that gave $2,000 to his campaign. George Stinson was certainly one of them. Did that have an impact on uh, whether or not Greenberg wanted to buy this hotel with the city's money? Maybe. Uh, you know, you can make your own decision. Though Those are the facts there. Um, the WDRP piece also said that Councilman Jacory Arthur was skeptical of this project in 2021 when it was proposed, but because the current mayor was able, able to negotiate the, the price down, you know, in 2021, we had Greg Fisher. Now we have Craig Greenberg. Um, and, and so, you know, is a different project and, and Jacory Arthur said, uh, you know, they couldn't find any other piece of property to be used for this purpose and quote, we had to get what we could get unquote. So it seems like, you know, there were a lot of people with reservations about the plan in 2021 that aren't skeptical now. And I think that has more to do with like, as this home, as the problem of homelessness in Louisville has gotten worse, 
we need to come up with solutions. This was a solution that was proposed. There were some problems there, but you know, not a lot has been done on the issue. So revisiting a different plan, making some changes in terms of what the city is going to be willing to spend on it, making some changes in how the property was going to be used. Because I think when Stinson originally came with the plan, it was just to basically like let people live there, um, which is not the, the plan now. And we'll kind of get into that. The building is probably going to require some redevelopment. It's a luxury hotel right now. Um, here's a quote uh, from the WDRB piece from the director of Develop Louisville, which is like the economic development arm of, of the city, I think. Quote, so things like glass showers, the rooms have a glass shower bath right in the middle of the room. That's not going to work for this population. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's kind of a weird quote, I think. Like, I don't know. People like glass showers, I guess, no matter who the population is. But I kind of get like maybe things that you use in a luxury hotel once or twice uh like for a couple days out of the year might not be necessarily the type of stuff you want in your house if you're going to be living there permanently and i could certainly see that being the case for any population um whether they're you know uh, experiencing homelessness or not so likely some redevelopment of the building that's going to be necessary. So the building is very close to the Hope Village, which is what the city describes as, quote, a safe outdoor space, unquote, for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, you know, there's a lot of tent, uh, tenting that goes on around the city among the uh, people experiencing homelessness. And, and I think this is just like a safe space that's a little bit more patrolled by the people who work there permanently, who are like city employees. Uh, they're not police, I don't think. Um, but, you know, they're just basically secure the area for people who um, want to, to stay outside instead of visit a shelter or or that's the only option they have or, or, or whatever. Okay, so the community campus itself is going to be a partnership between Metro Government, Norton Healthcare, UofL Health, and the Coalition for the Homeless. Uh, the idea for the building is used as temporary housing space. And I think this is kind of the key. Uh, space for people who are not sick enough to be admitted to a hospital but who can't recover on the streets this is a huge huge issue uh among the people who experience homelessness uh that that uh, i've heard about for a lot and i've witnessed it too you know you get discharged mm -hmm. from the hospital you have to recover i mean if i've been to the hospital uh and i tell you what they, they let you out of the hospital you're not well yet you know you're just out of the hospital <laughs> um, yeah and if you have nowhere to go if you have nowhere to recover if you are if you are experiencing homelessness, um, that's a really rough position to be in. And if you can't figure it out, you're just going to be right back in the hospital uh, just a couple of days or weeks later. Uh, and, and having a safe place to recover where you can, you know, you don't need the same amount of like critical care. You don't need doctors rounding on you uh, every couple of hours. You don't need nurses, um, you know, taking care of you. But, you, you know, you just need a bed. You need a place to stay where you can get better. Um before you go back to wherever you go like that, that can significantly impact uh, kind of the revolving door that a lot of hospitals experience among uh, patients who uh, are homeless. Um, okay. So that I think is a big deal. The temporary housing, pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, people, some people are going to get to live there um, uh, on a short term basis. They're also going to be a commercial kitchen. That's always good. Having a place to cook food. Uh, it, 
food uh, acquiring food is like a full-time occupation for a lot of people who experience homelessness like you got to eat to live and figuring out where to get your food is a big deal and the more options you have around that the better off that population is so that's good to have a kitchen there and then also laundry laundry is another huge need there are a lot of places in louisville that that provide laundry services for homeless people um but that's because there's a huge need uh, for people. I mean, if you live on the, if you are outdoors all day, every day, your stuff's gonna get dirty a lot quicker than it is if you are inside. And there's a huge, they generate a lot more laundry, and you have a lot more, a lot less like capability to actually get it done. So having laundry services key to just about every homeless service um, organization that, that at least I've seen that has some sort of shelter space. So anyways, the idea for this community campus is to serve 150 people a day, a little bit less than like the turnkey operation that Stinson was originally proposing. Just like let people move into there and have them just live there. Um, a little bit more of like uh, a vision around this kind of space. Um, and, and that's kind of the idea. Um, so we talked originally about that big chunk of money that's going to be spent to increase the housing stock, the more immediate, like, keep people in their homes that are facing eviction. And then this kind of middle thing, it's a well-developed, pro- or, you know, it's it's an idea that's got a, uh, had a lot of development done to it. There's a, a vision. There's an idea about what it's going to look like. There's a space that the city's buying. So it's kind of like a medium-term plan to do something very specific to meet a specific need. This plan came together very quickly. I think it's, you know, you got to say Craig Greenberg has been the mayor for less than a month. And this is a very, very large project that he's already announcing here. Um, you know, this plan combines the fast action and some medium term plans and some longer term plans. And I think for me, it's it's very refreshing to see the local government move like this to try to solve specific problems. You know, I, I will say moving very quickly presents its own potential set of problems but given you know taking too much time and taking not enough time i will say right now i'm kind of in the mood in the city of louisville to start moving pretty quickly and try to solve some problems that might arise from moving too quickly from what has been kind of going on which is kind of like dragging our feet and not doing anything uh and and, you know just maybe eventually after we've studied the issue for a very very long time do something very small all right, so Jasmine, I've been talking for a very long time about this plan. What are your impressions of it? What do you think either on any of the three, three tiers of it? Uh, how do you feel about this as it's being revealed? Yeah, to me, this all sounds like a lot of really good stuff. I, I'm i not a housing advocate. You know, I, I don't work around housing policy issues. And so I guess... You know, the one thing that I wonder and have questions about is, is I would want to hear from people who do that work, what, you know, people who work with people experiencing homelessness, but also people who work with people facing eviction and renters and, and things like that, um, and hear what they have to say about how the funds are, are being distributed and, and where they're going. Um, my other question is about the affordable housing. I know that housing is going for households that are making less than 50% of the adjusted median income, but I know that the the greatest need for housing is for those people that are at like 20% of the AMI. And so I, I want to make sure that the the people in that population of the greatest need are, are having that need met. Um, and so that 
I think that is the concern that I have heard from some people. Um, but I think I think there's so so many good things that touch every area of housing insecurity in this plan. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, to me, I, I think one of the issues around people who are housing advocates is they don't always agree with each other uh, about the best path right, forward. Cause, yeah, because they're working on different issues. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and, and that's one of the really hard things about, you know, being a decision maker is listening to all these people who care really passionately about these issues and, um, you know, choosing a path. Uh, and, and, you know, the Coalition for the Homeless are on board uh not i i know that not every organization that works around these issues like is best friends with the coalition uh, for the homeless um but you know this is the path that they've taken and like i said like bias towards action is something that i i'm i'm kind of like i'm for it right now um and, and yeah but but all of the criticisms that are likely to arise people who are upset that the money's going for x instead of y like those are all things that we need to listen to um as as those criticisms come out and and, and see and, and react and i think craig greenberg will as well and, and to your second point like he's clearly heard that about people who are even lower on the income tier um you know having greater needs in that he he spoke to that specifically right he yeah he did address that yeah and, and i don't know if the plan is you know we that that's the longer term portion of the plan so we don't really have any details about that but but that's something that's yet to be seen is kind of like okay you you mentioned it that's good but are you actually going to do anything about it and so that's something that we'll need to watch and see as uh as it yeah moves forward. and then on your point about Greenberg moving quickly and putting this plan together, I definitely agree. I think, I think Greg Fisher was kind of in a, a long lame duck phase. It felt like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and people were so ready um, for something new, and I think people also had a lot of um, concerns about whether Greenberg might be more of the same. And, and so I think starting out with with something big and comprehensive like this is, is a really good thing. I, I was talking to someone the other day who is in elected office and, you know, just got done campaigning and was like, man, Craig Greenberg hasn't stopped. Yeah. He just kept going. And I was like, yeah, I think he had to. <laughs> yeah. He's, I, I, we, we talked about this on the campaign trail quite a bit, but or during the campaign quite a bit, but it's like, you, you know, if you're he's running for a job i don't know why anyone wants it like you know there's there's just such a low <laughs> estimation for what the city government yeah. can do right now uh and you know that i i don't know i in my opinion uh getting off and running like that with like he's actually done um is, is the best thing he could have done um but you know in terms of the actual policy you know the stuff that's happening immediately seems very very good but those medium and long-term things you know um, like everything that's medium or long term, there are still pitfalls that could arrive. They all seem like good ideas. Increasing the housing stock, having some place for, uh, you know, temporary, uh, some temporary kind of solution for people who are discharged from the hospital or who need temporary housing. That's a good idea. Um, and, and as they are executed, of course, there's pitfalls that may arise. Uh, but those are things that we, we just kind of have to watch as they as they move forward. So, yeah, um, you know, yeah. The city's doing stuff. That seems uh, yeah. seems good, and and we we got this money that's available to us, and we're, we're making good use of it. Hopefully, all right, Jasmine. That was the big story today. Tell us uh, about these quickets that you you rounded up for us. 
Yeah, so these first two are, are just updates from last week's story. So last week we talked about an internal poll from the Daniel Cameron camp that showed him with a big lead over his Republican opponents. Um, but now there's an independent poll showing the same thing. Um, however, it, it shows Bashir in the lead overall. The poll is from Mason Dixon Polling and Strategy and shows Bashir polling nine percentage points ahead of Cameron. Um, Cameron leads with 39% of Republican voters saying they would likely vote for him, while Kelly Craft got 13% and Ryan Quarles got 8% and 28% are undecided. Um, so, Robert, any surprises there with that independent poll? No, I'm not surprised. I, I would say that the thing that I was the su- most surprised with is, like, you know, there's it's 2023. There's not a lot of national elections going on. And, of course, like, the election industrial complex in this country is, like, there people crave election coverage. Uh, so a lot of the national outlets that are, like, writing about Kentucky are, like, I don't know. That seems like a, a lead that's going to erode for Andy Bashir. There's no way a Democrat in Kentucky could get 60% of the vote. And I just am like, I don't know why not. Like, I mean, Andy Bashir legitimately seems very popular uh, among even among the people I know that would never vote for a Democrat for any, another office. Like his his actual his actual work as the governor seems to have pleased many people who are not natural constituents to to Kentucky. Uh, to Kentucky Democrats and and yeah I, I would not be surprised if you won like 60 40 um, and, and I think you know that's just from looking at it for a long time so maybe that's the biggest surprise is like how <laughs> how little this this poll uh, is is trusted right now um, we, we'll see for sure uh, what, did, what did you think Jasmine did you think were you surprised by the size of the lead uh, that he that Andy Bashir had among um, uh, over his challengers or, or was that what you expected to see I wasn't surprised by the Bashir lead at all. I, I was still a little bit surprised. I said this last week too, um, that Cameron had such a big lead over Kelly Craft and Ryan Quarles. I I thought I guess that the undecideds would be a little bit higher and then that vote I thought that Cameron would certainly be leading because he has higher name recognition. Um, but I, th- I thought that that vote would be a little bit more evenly split than it was. I, I think that, yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with that totally. Uh, I will be interested to see as trend lines start to emerge because this is after Kelly Craft had like started to get on the air. She only has 13%, but I would be very interested if she has gone from like 2% to 13% as she's gotten on the air and if she has room to grow mm-hmm. or if she's kind of stuck there. I could see either happening because... I feel like her ads have been really ineffective. Like one was like, you know, pretty widely decried. Um, yeah. The the the, uh, the fentanyl one, and then you know she has this one about the border wall. The Kentucky border one. I feel like. Yeah. Is just insane. Also, <laughs> ma- like all, and I don't know. Like I feel like we're making jokes about it. I would be interested to know like what Republican primary voters think about it. Maybe they take it more seriously. Yeah. But, but maybe not. You know, and it could be that. That she really is hitting a ceiling because people really aren't interested in what Kelly Craft has to sell. I uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, the next quick hit is an update to the Jonathan Mattingly event in Bowling Green. Um, so that was an event held by the Republican women of South Central Kentucky. Um, it was held at Anna's Greek Restaurant in Bowling Green. Jonathan Mattingly issued a video apology 
where he apologized for interrupting guest meals and offered to pay their bills. He spent much of the apology video discussing the subject matter of the talk um, and, you know, talking about the people need to know the truth about what happened that night and following that night. Um, but he does sympathize with diners who did not come to Anna that came to Anna's to eat and didn't come to, you know, listen to something that they didn't agree with or didn't want to hear and acknowledge that people might have experienced trauma from having to hear that. Um, so that's something I yeah. suppose that was nice of him to apologize and offer to pay their bills. Yeah. Th thank you, Jonathan Mattingly, for 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 this. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I've still heard anything from the restaurant owners like at all. Um. Or the. Yeah. The, I. I've still seen nothing. Which I'm a little surprised. I I felt like Jonathan Mattingly would be like the last person to issue an apology, and I guess he's also the most likely to talk. The only solution I can think of to this problem, Jasmine, you know, Maria Sorolis, uh, you know, she's she she lost the election this this past year in, in East Louisville. Um, also, a really proficient and very good cook of Greek food. Like she cooks a lot of Greek food. She posted on her, her uh, Facebook a lot. She needs to move to Bowling Green, you know, retire from practicing law and open, <laughs> you know, Maria's Greek restaurant and be the competition to Anna. She could be like the progressive um, you know, uh, you know, taking on Anna's there in Bowling Green. That's the only solution I can think of. Uh, I so. would eat at Maria's Greek restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I've sure. never eaten the food, but she takes pictures of it, and I'm like, I want some baklava. Like, like I want, yeah, let's have some spanakopita. That looks amazing. So, <laughs> there you go. All right, uh, maybe this is the last we'll we'll hear of Jonathan Mattingly down in Bowling Green. We'll we'll see. All right, the next one is um, an update from. A while back, um, so former LMPD officer Katie Cruz will not go to jail or prison for her conviction related to the David McAtee case. Um, so she pled guilty to excessive use of force for shooting pepper balls at David McAtee's niece, who was on private property when she was shot with the pepper balls um, the night that David McAtee was killed. Her sentencing report actually recommended one year to serve. Um, in detention, but the prosecution recommended probation um, as part of the plea agreement. So the judge probated Cruz um, reluctantly, it sounds like, from quotes from the sentencing hearing. Um, but I think he increased the term of probation. So she will be probated for two years plus a number of community service hours and a fine. I think the other reason that probation was recommended is because David McAtee's family believes that that sentence is acceptable. Um, their attorney, Steve Romans, provided a statement and said, Cruz accepted responsibility for her role in this, and the family feels that sending her to prison would only make it worse when it is the LMPD as a whole that inadequately trained her and sent her there that night that deserves the lion's share of the blame. That's really gracious of them. Um, you know, it's really hard in, in a moment of grief like that to kind of see the bigger picture um i mean that's i don't think anybody would would think worse of them for not seeing the bigger picture but but they yeah. could, they clearly do um I, I think that this is spot on like i don't think that katie cruz based on my read of the situation ever intended for anything like this to happen but given the way that she acted it's easy to see how her actions led to this happening um, so yeah, it seems like a lack of training, um, the, the, the actions of the police 
on that night and really during that entire period uh, led to a lot of unnecessary violence. And, and yeah, that's probably to me where a lot of the blame lies in this situation. Um, so yeah, very, very gracious by, by David McAtee's family. Um, and, and I really hope that, you know, probation is effective for, for Katie Cruz where she can, you know, you know, end up in a better place after this is all over. That's at least the goal, right? Yeah. So, so that's another case, um, concluded, um, back from 2020. And then, uh, the last quick hit we have, we just kind of wanted to note that there have been, um, vigils and gatherings in Kentucky to protest the murder of Tyree Nichols by police in Memphis. Um, activists marched through the Highlands and downtown um, this weekend, and they held a press conference at Jefferson Square Park, um, which became known as Injustice Square Park during the Breonna Taylor protests. Um, Breonna Taylor's mom actually shared that Breonna and Tyree Nichols were born on the exact same day. Wow. They would have both turned... 30 years old this year that's crazy that's a wild coincidence um it's it's just a the whole thing down there in memphis is it's just such a tragedy and it's you know part and parcel of of a trend of things that have happened you know recent days have gotten a lot of coverage but that go back a very very long time um in this country and they have to stop um i don't even know what else to say about it but but that's it Mm -hmm. all right well, Jasmine, um, thank you for those quick hits. I learned some new stuff. But, yeah, let's go ahead and get to our interview with Jason Bailey. Jason Bailey is the executive director for the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. Over the past decade, Mr. Bailey has presented the case for more progressive public policy using research, evidence, and analysis. This year, Kentucky policy has spoken out about the income tax cut, which is making its way through the legislature already. So, Jason Bailey, welcome to my old Kentucky podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're really thrilled to have you. I don't know if you've ever been on the show before. We've had a lot of Kentucky policy people on before. No. Yeah, back in first the first time, long time. Yeah, well, good, awesome. Well, we're really excited to have you because, like, this is a major issue. Probably going to be the major issue of this year's uh, session. And of course, it's already kind of underway. It got started even before the break. And of course, we're talking about 2023's HB1, which is a one half of a percent income tax cut. You have published research saying it would amount to uh, $5,528 to the wealthiest 1%, each of them, uh, while 1.3 million Kentuckians would get nothing. Uh, in addition, it seems likely that the inevitable drop in revenue will result in service cuts for people in need. Uh, I mean, I don't know. The bill looks pretty bad to me. Uh, so besides just those headline facts, what are some other things about the bill uh, that, that you think are important to know? What are some potential problems that, that you see it, it, with the rest of the legislation? Yeah, so one, one really important thing to understand is the income tax uh, generates about 41% of all the revenue that we collect for the state budget. So nearly half comes from the income tax. And this is a step, the second step toward uh, potentially eliminating the tax. But since it generates so much money, um, we're not just talking about vulnerable people who get hurt with when we cut it. Uh, we're talking about you know everybody, uh, every community in one way or another uh, depends on the income tax to fund the basic services and the foundational investments that make us healthy educated and uh and to help our economy grow um you know if you um if you've ever been to the hospital if you've ever been to a doctor's office if you've ever been to a school if you've ever been to a public university or had a family member that gone to a public university if you've ever drank the water 
and hope that it's clean. If you've ever hoped that there's food inspection at your restaurant, um, that the air is clean, all those things, there are, st there are state dollars, income tax dollars specifically, that fund those things. And so if we continue on this path of severely cutting and even eliminating nearly half of our budget, how are we going to function as a state? And that question has not been answered by the folks who are pushing this. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that that's so interesting. Right. And I guess that's that's a good second question is um, there's been a lot of discussion about this bill, a lot of discussion around the income tax this year already in, uh, you know, the places where they're talking about this. I've seen you talk a bunch about this already as like the person giving the case uh, for, for, for this side of the argument. But it is wild to me how little. The people who are making the case for the tax cut really talk about income replacement, really talk about what the additional things that are likely to happen when you cut the revenue by by that much. I mean, is that do you, do you feel like that that's resonating? Do you feel like the people who are listening? I mean, well, I, I mean, you've been around these discussions a whole lot. Do you feel like the people who are interviewing you or the people that are responding to these kinds of things is the fact that, you know, we're going to lose a lot of revenue is the reality of that set in for people yet? Or are they just kind of happy to get, you know, 20 bucks back in their tax return or something like that. Well, you know, I mean, it's complicated. Uh, taxes are complicated and people don't necessarily pay close attention. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, when you lay when you lay out the case to folks, I think they do understand. It. I just don't think they're hearing it very much. And, and the legislature is choosing this opportunity to make these start like making these large cuts uh, at a time that we actually have a lot of extra revenues. Um, but it's all because of temporary factors. And every state is experiencing large budget surpluses. And that's because we got all this federal pandemic aid that, that came in to stimulate a really fast recovery. And secondly, we have really high inflation right now. And so when, when it costs more to buy things, we get more sales tax revenue or we get more income tax revenue when wages go up. But every expectation is that those are temporary factors. They're going to go away, but the legislature is making permanent tax cuts uh, that are not being reversed based on those um, based on those temporary factors. It's really going to hide the impact in the short term. And there, you know, there are also some sales taxes that they're raising, but they don't come anywhere close to offsetting. And there is about a, they're they're going to generate about a dollar from these new sales taxes for every twelve dollars that they cut in income tax. So how do we make up that that the, that that gap? No one has explained how that's going to happen. Yeah, they certainly haven't and and it is kind of wild how how this how, it seems like they're just just going to not talk about it uh and and skate by that way which is uh seems seems bad to me uh but you know kentucky of course is not the only state that has gone the route of trying to eliminate the in income tax of course not every state has an income tax and and that's kind of what the legislature points to a lot is like there are a lot of states including some along our borders uh, that don't have an income tax currently. But one of the things is, is if you transition away from an income tax, that causes a lot of problems. And some states have already kind of gone down that path. And, I, you know, I know uh, Kentucky Policy and, and KSEP, which is, it used to be called, has talked for a long time about the example of Kansas in the 2010s. Uh, so, you know, I know this story and I'm, I, 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 I think it's really it's illustrative, but you obviously know a lot more about this story. What can you tell us about what happened in Kansas in the 2010s and what Kentucky should learn from that experience? Yeah, so Kansas went down the same path that we're starting to go down now. They reduced the income tax rate. The governor at the time, Sam Brownback, said it would be a shot of adrenaline in the heart of the Kansas economy, that businesses would flock to Kansas 
people would move there, the economy would take off, and this sort of trickle-down effect would would mean that they wouldn't actually lose revenue. Uh, that they would they would uh, that the, the economic boost they would receive would make up for it. Uh, it did not happen at, at all. It, it, what they did was tore a, a huge hole in the budget. Uh, the economy didn't grow any faster, uh, and Kansas started having a series of crises. They were two uh, credit downgrades. Um, they had a, a Supreme Court ruling that their school funding was unconstitutional. They actually had to close school early uh, one year in, in a number of districts because they ran out of money. And it was a it was it was it was a catastrophe. And what the legislature did five years later was just roll it back. They had to roll the tax cuts back, and and Governor Brownback had to resign and go take a job with the Trump administration. So this is very dangerous. There's only one state that's ever eliminated its income tax, and that's Alaska. And it was only after they struck oil and built a, a pipeline in the Prudhoe Bay uh, across the state and, and, and benefited from all that oil tax revenue. Uh, 41 states have income taxes, almost all of them do. And the few that don't, in almost all cases, either have a lot of tourism, like Tennessee does, like Florida does, like Nevada does with Las Vegas, or they have natural resources like oil and gas, like Alaska, like Texas, uh, like Wyoming. Uh, you know, it just does not work in Kentucky. You know, we used to have coal. We don't have much coal anymore mm -hmm. and we don't have the tourism. So it, it, it doesn't work. It's, it's, it didn't work in Kansas. It didn't work in a number of other states that have tr gone down that path and just seen lower revenues as a result in recent years. But what we're seeing right now because of this surplus money is, a, is in a number of states, including Kentucky, an attempt to go bold again and not learn those lessons. Yeah, so our next question I think is, it's kind of a broader question. While there are big specific battles to be fought over the tax code right now, the, the deeper problem might be the view among some government leaders that government revenue is inherently wasteful. And conservatives have been making that case for a very long time at this point. And so what are some programs or efforts which um, advocates for a higher level of government spending can point to as evidence that government can be a positive force for society. Sure, uh, I, I think there are, there are a lot of examples. Uh, I'll just uh, I'll choose one. I think a lot of people talk about is our uh, early childhood education and care uh, is a, is a huge issue uh, in this state and around the country, and you could stack up uh, uh, a really tall tower of all the studies that have shown that there's a very large return on investment for every dollar you put into early childhood, what you get back over time in the, in the life chances and the economic success of the individuals, the, the kids who, um, who, who get to take advantage of that. It's also a win-win-win uh, when people have access to, to childcare and to preschool. It means that parents can, um, can work it means the kids can get exposed to um, those opportunities and, and have access to nutrition and other all the things that you can get through a school. Uh, it means businesses can um, better find the workers uh, and so forth. But we, you know, we we haven't been doing enough, nearly enough, with our tax money in that area. We only started funding full day kindergarten a couple of years ago. Um, we have a uh, a massive childcare desert. About half of Kentuckians live in a childcare desert where there's not easy access to childcare. And um, that market has really uh, crumbled over the last decade, a severe reduction in the number of centers. 
it's being propped up right now with the federal pandemic aid money that is running out next year. And it's one of the great examples of how we need to state money to fill in the gap when that federal money ends, or we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see more child care centers close and more people, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, not able to, to find that service they need. So, so, you know, that's just one example where, you know, there are things that we do together that we just can't do alone. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's a, that's a great example of one. Um, and, you know, you, you could go, you could go on through the, through the code, but the, you know, state government's about 6% of the economy. We're not talking about a, a massive uh, thing here, but they're just, when it, when it comes to building roads, when it comes to providing schools and friends, providing childcare, um, there are many ways that we don't always understand uh, that uh, state dollars uh, help families, help communities get by. Yeah, I think that's a really great example. And, you know, you just said that state government, 6% of the economy. Um, and over the past six years or so, Kentuckians have elected an increasingly conservative legislature. But do you think that economic policy is playing a big enough role in elections? And is there a way to make economic policy, a, a bigger issue during campaigns? How do you make people care about it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of the reason we exist, we don't exist to influence elections, but we do exist to uh, inform people about what's going on. Because I don't think, you know, with, with the, the media shrinking, um, you know, and just with the lack of kind of a adequate civic infrastructure in Kentucky, I don't think there's enough good information about the decisions that are made in Frankfurt and how they impact specifically the material mm -hmm. well-being of families and communities, which is what we're talking about when we talk about these, these economic issues. So, um, I mean, that's one of the reasons we, we exist and we're trying to sort of push more into the public sphere a debate about these things. Like, for example, this tax cut. I mean, you know, I think there is a debate about this now in a way that's good. Um, otherwise, you know, it just sort of, these things sort of, people are busy, uh, you know, the, the, what goes on in Frankfurt is not everybody's favorite hobby to follow, unlike you all. And, and, me. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of things, times these things can, can happen without people paying attention. And so, um, I guess I, I see that as part of our mission is just to help people interpret and understand what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And I think that I want to ask a question that's kind of combining those, those past two things, which is to kind of talk about. I mean, when you think about things like improving the state government's child care capacity mm -hmm. um, and also just like the role in which economics plays or economic policy plays in when people are thinking about the government, which is usually around election time, you know, getting people to realize what's possible out there. Like, you know, mm -hmm. people are used to paying fifteen hundred dollars a month to send their kid right. to daycare to go work like as a middle class person who's a high propensity to to go vote uh like you know middle class person in the state of kentucky uh much less somebody who uh doesn't have that sort of uh that sort of economic security so people are just like well this is just the way it is and that's just not how it has to be so i guess like how how are ways that you guys have worked to kind of expand people's imagination or ima expand people's kind of vision about what government can be for people uh if it's well organized and if it you know it, it does the things that it can do yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, is explaining and helping people understand what's been going on. Um, so, so, for example, uh, it used to be that uh, 
the state picked up about two-thirds of the cost of higher education and students picked up about a third uh, 20 years ago. Now that ratio has exactly flipped where students are paying about two-thirds and the state is paying about one-third. The state has severely reduced its, its contributions from the general fund to our universities and community colleges. And what has that translated into? Student loan debt, $20 billion in student loan debt for Kentuckians. So similar to your point about the cost, the thousands of dollars people spend every year on childcare, they're spending sometimes decades of their lives paying off an education that, you know, at UK is now, uh, what, $25,000 a year. Um, so that it, it all comes back to, um, to you in one way or another. There, there are ways in which often misunderstood or just not understood at all, um, tax dollars help support public services we all rely on. And when we cut those taxes, especially the income tax, the benefit goes overwhelmingly to the wealthy um, and it takes away from the money and it means you're paying more later when you send your kid to college or when you try to sign them up for childcare and can't find a slot. Yeah, all of this discussion makes me think about like the role that you guys play in, in the formation of policy uh, in in this state, and and you know it is kind of it's kind of funny looking at it from the outside because you know I see you guys get up and you give these big presentations about stuff like stuff like you're doing right now about the the income tax reduction and how bad of an idea it is. And you know we're both sitting here and we know for like it's going to pass right the, the first week back they're going to pass this and then that's going to be it. Um, but also like talking to people who uh, are on your staff and like they they're very available they they. Uh, are, are willing to talk to me if I have an issue or a question about about a bill, and I typically do. Uh, and, and, you know, there are a lot of discussions. I know that happen behind the scenes, uh, things that you guys are doing with, with legislators who may seem outwardly hostile to you sometimes. So I am kind of curious, like, what is the role that Kentucky policy plays in forming policy with the legislature? Uh, how do you guys kind of do your jobs? Are there parts of it that are, that are maybe uh, not seen by us that that you know you feel like you you're making an impact on on some of these bills, where maybe they're not quite as bad as they could have been, or or they they might just uh, uh, ha- have some things that have changed about them in, in slight ways to make it so that something that could be truly terrible is is only just pretty bad. Well, I think. I mean, I, I would say that our we think our key mission is to connect Kentuckians with the decision, the decision makers and the decisions that affect their lives. And we're providing an education and information gap that we think was severely uh, lacking before. But we certainly do work directly with lawmakers, both, um, you know, through lobbying meetings and through information sharing, as well as through sort of public campaigns. Um, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, of defense that we have to play. And we've seen, for example, bills in the last couple of legislative sessions that uh, would have severely reduced, cut the safety net. Uh, and those ended up, you know, not happening uh, in part because of a lot of lobbying, a lot of pressure, a lot of conversations that happened. And even this income tax cut, when it came out of the house in the original version of the income tax cut started last year, this is, this is part two. Uh, when it came out of the house, it would have been absolutely catastrophic. We would have uh, without question, eliminate our income tax within 10 years. With the Senate, though, with some information shared and some um, exposure of what was going on, they they did weaken it. Um, and, and, you know, that's our hope. We understand that Senate is planning to pass this bill, House Bill 1, in, in, uh, when they come back. But the mechanism they've set up means that they could be back next year 
for another half a point and the year after that for another half a point. So we're also playing to that. We're, we're, we're trying to get education out about that because they have to stop. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a train wreck. They have to stop. And there's many, 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 of, many of the folks who will vote for it um, live in particularly in rural areas that are just going to get hammered. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, and, uh, I'm very sensitive to that. And I do see a lot of these things change. You know, Jasmine and I pay attention to these bills from the time that they're introduced until they pass. We do see a lot of times, you know, oh, there's a committee substitute or, oh, they, you know, there's an amendment on the floor that kind of came out of nowhere from this person who we're a little surprised thinks this way or might do something like this. So, you know, we're, we're always like, I wonder what happened. And so, you know, we never know. But uh, but sometimes you may. Um, it is always kind of interesting to you. I wasn't able to make it to your conference this year, but I remember a, a previous iteration where like Robert Goforth was there or something. I was like, well, that's very surprising. And there's always kind of surprising people who you may not think would be willing to engage in some of these issues. And given the conservative nature of, of Kentucky's legislature and the things that people uh, feel like they have to do, it is it's really interesting to see the alliances or at least the people who are willing to listen. So, you know, well, I think, yeah, and I think it's around economic issues where there are some potential inroads. Uh, we haven't got there yet on this issue, but if you look in the last legislative session, there were about 15 Republicans in the House that voted against cutting unemployment benefits. There were about 21, I think, Republicans in the House that voted against charter schools. Um, so, you know, because it doesn't help their communities. In fact, it hurts their communities in, in really serious ways. Um, this income tax cut is, is, um, is even worse than those ideas. <laughs> Right, because if you look at any rural community, the, the, the main engines of the economy now are the public schools and the hospitals and healthcare system, if they even have a hospital anymore. And those are funded with state dollars, overwhelmingly with state dollars. Um, so if you take that away, or if you cut the funding for the state park that's nearby, that's also funded with state dollars, um, you know, you're talking about a lot of job loss in areas that have already been hurt. So I think. You know, that's where some opportunity for some alliances, I think, exist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we, we could talk all day about urban and rural uh, issues and, and kind of how the, the legislators in urban areas and the legislators in r r rural areas are probably more salient divide than even the partisan one. Um, but yeah, it's certainly, certainly something that's, that's interesting for sure. Um, we've been talking to you about economic issues. Um, and, and of course that's uh, a big thing that you do, uh, specifically, but Kentucky policy produces tons of research on lots of issues like criminal justice, education, healthcare, everything else that the, the state kind of touches. Uh, so, I mean, just uh, here at the end, what are some other things that, that the Kentucky policy has been working on this session that you think is really interesting or exciting or that people should check out? Well, I think one of the big issues, of course, is the short session, so there's not many, many days left. One of the big issues I think remaining is about the juvenile legal system. Um, you know, we've had, uh, again, it's, this is another issue where state budget cuts have led to severe understaffing of, of juvenile facilities and, you know, has contributed to the horrific violence and mistreatment that's been reported well by the press. Um, so that's going on. And then at the same time, I think you're, we're we're concerned about legislation that sort of takes advantage of a lot of the fear around um, violence over the last couple of years to further increase criminal criminalization of kids, um, putting more more of them behind bars or behind bars for longer. Um, that's a big concern, and it's a it's a it is a, a trend over uh, decades in the legislature that's very very concerning. You know, we did a study. 
Uh, in 2011, you all remember there was a significant criminal justice reform in the in the legislature that was pretty good. It was steps in the right direction. Since that time, they've passed 71 bills increasing criminal penalties and only 12 bills decreasing criminal penalties. And, and it is just, uh, you know, led to Kentucky being one of the most incarcerated places on the planet. Uh, and to think that we may be advancing that further with kids in this legislative session is very concerning. So we're working a lot on that, uh, along with a coalition of other groups and, and folks who are who are very worried about that issue. You're definitely speaking my language, talking about <laughs> juvenile justice policy. Uh, before we let you go, how can our listeners learn more about Kentucky policy? Yeah, um, so visit our website. It's uh, kypolicy.org. Uh, we've got an email list. Uh, you can sign up to get uh, emails from us. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram. Uh, I guess we're moving into the two, 2010s or something. Um, so, uh, yeah, follow us on there. All right. Well, Jason Bailey, thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. All right. Great talking to you all. Thanks. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support the work that we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast network and the Ford Kentucky network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.